Hi everybody, it's Steph. Hope you're doing well. Wanted to get down a few thoughts while on my way to pick up my wounded beast of a computer. From a desk shop. I have had some thoughts. I've been reading uh, up on babies' brain development, you know, as a sort of interested layperson, complete amateur. I'm quite fascinated by the sort of last 30 years of the science of brain development and what it has taught us about the capacities of particularly babies. I mean, I'm, I'm astounded, astounded, astounded every single day the degree to which my daughter processes new information and is able to remember how to do things from one day to the next when she's supposed to be supposedly just sort of living in the moment and so on. That she still she has a real continuity of of learning and skills development and uh, uh, she has uh, she has moods and she's very. Uh, creative and very curious and absolutely fascinated by how the world works. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to see uh, because uh, we see, uh, you know, it really is. It's just too sad for words. We see so often that adults have lost that curiosity and that drive and desire and excitement to simply explore the world. It's, I swear to Zeus, Isabella cannot be restrained from exploring the house. She can't be. Like, if I put her on my lap, because uh, daddy likes the odd cuddle. <laughs> She'll, you know, and eh, fine, here's a, here's a cuddle. Now I'm going again. <laughs> like, she will squirm and kick to, to explore. I mean, there are times when she wants to be helped, but for the most part, she is just like uh, the Energizer Bunny going around and exploring and picking and tasting and turning over and figuring things out. Uh, I gave her, we, we got a, a sort of fence system, and uh, it came with a blue strap, and I gave her the blue strap to play with, and she sat there for 20 minutes, turning it over, tasting it, trying to figure out what the blue strap was, how it worked, what it was all about. And that drive to understand and to learn and to explore, it's amazing. I was sitting here, I was watching her the other day, and I was just thinking, you know, it's quite comfortable. She was sort of nestled in a bunch of pillows and crawling around. And I was like, you know, it's it's pretty comfortable where you are, Isabella. You ever think of just like, I don't know, (laughs) lying back and looking out the window? You know, like she's, but she doesn't because she is so driven to uh, to explore the world, and that is a it's a beautiful and and fantastic and wonderful wonderful thing to see. While at the same time, it's sad to see because it reminds me the curiosity and the courage that is so missing from the world, right? Like she's starting to get the cause and effect, right? So we got her this uh, bouncy chair and. Uh, it's not a bouncy, she's a bouncy seat, an exosaucer it's called. She stands and there's these toys around her and so on. She stands in, in these two little holes. And when we first put her in about six weeks ago, she, you know, we had to sort of watch her the whole time. But now she's you know, playing with everything and she's figured out that there's one, like it's like a little fire truck. No, it's a fire engine house. And she pushes down on it and music plays and Daddy does his silly dances, which are also known when he was younger as his cool dances. But you gain this perspective with age. And um, so she's learned that with different songs, I will do different dances. And she's completely, of course, delighted by this. Uh, and uh, when I don't dance for whatever reason, uh, she's shocked. <laughs> and, and then I dance and she's okay. And so she's getting this sort of cause and effect and, and learning how things work. And she's got a really great mental map of the house. Like you can put her down in the study. She will barrel up the uh, hallway into her room because we have her baby monitor uh, is uh, on the ground so that we can keep it plugged in. And she always wants to go, it's not on the, sorry, it's on a little footstool. So she loves going up to the footstool, climbing up to the footstool, and grabbing at, she loves everything with a cord, right? Like all, all babies, I think. 
I don't know how our species survived the reality of snakes, but uh, that's <laughs> not for me to answer, as so little is. But um, she will barrel down the hallway, and she will go directly straight to her room, straight to that, you know, from the other end of the house. So she really has a good, good mental map of the house, and it's really, really impressive. And she has that, you know, she remembers that from one day to the next. And uh, it is, it's also a fascinating, though again, of course, sad for me, though I don't think it would be for everyone, but it's a sad experience too. I was just looking at her today. Um, and we have some, I'm going to take her to the pool sort of twice a week if I can, or three times, and we have a, uh, a little inflatable thing that she sits in, and it's in the uh, floor in the, uh, in the dining room, which is pretty empty, and she loves playing with it because it's got cords and she can lift it, right? She wants, I, I wanted to feel that sense of power, as I mentioned in the Sunday show. And I was just thinking, you know, and it's a funny thing to think when you're a parent, and I'm sure every parent thinks it many, many times, but uh, you look back and you say, well, I was, uh, I was that size, I was that way, I was that age, I was that, and I can't imagine what my childhood was like. I can't imagine, <laughs> I guess, but I can't really imagine what it was like in any practical sense when I was that age, right? She's, I guess, eight and a half or eight and three-quarter months. So it is, it's really fascinating to see just what a, an exploring and learning goddess uh, she is, uh, how, how amazing uh, she is at remembering things, at developing her mental maps, at figuring things out, at exploring things. She is unrestrained in her, her adoration, her, her stalking her fetish for the world. Uh, and I think that is such a beautiful thing. Can you keep that all the way through adulthood? Well, I hope so. I mean, I like to think that I've, I know that I've kept some of it. I like to think I've kept a lot of it. Um, but that, that she is, she is, you know, it reminds me of a line from a U2 song, trying to throw your arms around the world. She's trying to throw, she's trying to hug the entire planet. She is so excited by existence and so curious to explore the world that it is a reminder of how we start and a tragedy to, to a large degree of how many people end up indifferent to knowledge or hostile to knowledge or to curiosity or to exploration uh, who get cast in dogma, you know, dogma is not just an interesting film, but has always reminded me of that metal spray, that cryogenic metal spray that is uh, sprayed upon Han Solo in uh, The Empire Strikes Back, I think. He's cast in iron and cannot move. And that's dogma, right? That's an addiction to conclusions rather than a curiosity and a consistency of methodology. That is religion, not science. That is, a, that is racism, not exploration. And in reading these books about how the baby's brain develops and how the baby's brain works, or at least the latest theories, it's hard to know for sure of any of these things, but it really is hard to miss, and I'm, it's not a fleshed out, it's not proven, this is just some thoughts, right, that might be of interest to you. It's hard to miss how particular philosophical states seem to correspond to particular stages of mental development. So, object uh, constancy, a, a, a depth perception, and so on. Now, object constancy is a very, very interesting uh, aspect of uh, the brain development, right? And it's it's basically, uh, you know, you you put a ball under a blanket when a kid is young enough, she will uh, just oh the ball's gone and just go play with something else. But after a certain six or eight months or whatever, she will pick up the blanket and find the ball, and she knows it's still there even when it's out of sight. Although, babies, when they're even younger, if you have a little car racing behind a screen and then another car or the same car appears, 
uh, later on, uh, the baby's eyes will still follow it. They know there's still something behind the screen. Uh, but of course, if it changes into a duck, they don't seem to care. They just know something's there. And object constancy is something that I think is, you know, when I think of something like Cartesian metaphysics or epistemology, Descartes' uh, Cartesian demon, right? That, that the world could be manipulated by an external devil who is playing around with your every conceivable perception. That, to me, would indicate something awry in the mental development around the stage of object constancy. What is the difference between, you know, Platonism versus Aristotelianism, the two major schools of philosophy in, uh, in Western thought? Well, one is rational and empirical and outward-focused and assumes that the mind is innately capable of error and that concepts are imperfectly derived from instances in the world, as I have <laughs> memorably and tiresomely phrased it. And, and Platonism is the world is, uh, is that which exists largely within your own mind and before you were born, and what we experience in the perceptual realm is a dim uh, after-effect or an inferior copy, a degraded copy of what actually has uh, occurred for us within our own uh, minds before birth and in the perfect world of forms. Well, to me, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that I mean, the babies don't notice much about the world early on in their life. Their eyesight is very poor. Their depth perception is very poor. They simply don't notice much about the world out there. And so if something went awry with uh, an, a baby very early on, the baby might... Like, if, if the baby found the world to be alarming or frightening or... Uh, horrible or something like that, then the baby might recoil from exploring the world. And if the baby recoiled from exploring the world, then the baby would turn to imagination, right? I mean, the mind is like a, a river. You dam it at one and it just spills over somewhere else, right? So if if the baby uh, is, is not able to explore the world in a pragmatic and practical way and to explore objects and so on, but is uh, restrained uh, either in you know the, 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 the crippling swaddling that Damas uh, argues, and I think with some good proof, uh, was consistent and constant throughout most of human history. If the baby is prevented from exploring the world or is uh, not able to explore the world, um, then it would seem to me quite logical and quite likely that the intellectual capacities that, or the, the developmental capacities that normally would be poured into an exploration of a rational and empirical world would instead be turned inwards, into self-regard, into imagination, into internal shapes, into dreams, into introspection, although that's an odd word to use with a baby. I think you know uh, what it is that I mean. Like, if you're in an isolation tank, your memory, uh, sorry, your imagination goes completely vivid and takes over and becomes extraordinarily powerful. And the, the degree to which we find ourselves bereft of external stimuli or internal stimuli will increase. And what does that mean? Well, it means that wouldn't it sort of make sense that you would view the world as primarily driven by mind and not empiricism if you weren't allowed or if you were punished for or for some reason you couldn't explore the world around you. That you would not have the fundamental basis, and I, I'm not, I don't know whether I'm talking cognitively or emotionally, and again, this is all just rank speculation, but you wouldn't have that empirical love of the world. You would have a primacy of consciousness, not a primacy of empiricism. Right? You think, and you think of the stereotype, right? The, 
the sickly boys, right? Uh, you, you, the Victorian boys, you know. Oh, I had the consumption, and I sat in my bed and I made up stories. And then these people, I think Robert Louis Stevenson was one, to become these amazingly um, uh, with great fertile imaginations and and so on. Uh, that uh, people uh, who who have uh, these kinds of sickly childhoods, where they can't go out and explore the world, well, their inner world becomes stronger and. To me, the difference between Aristotelianism and Platonism is the difference between religion and science, right? In, in, uh, si in religion, the primacy of thought uh, is, uh, is, uh, is the ultimate arbiter of truth, right? Uh, and that's the ontological proof of God. We can think of God, therefore God must be real. It's the primacy of thought. But in science and in Aristotelianism, it's the primacy of empiricism, of reason and evidence that counts. And that really, I think, would only occur when uh, someone has had the capacity to explore the world and become tomboyish in that way. Or to go uh, in another, another step, and I'm not saying these are all the steps, but in another step, what about the development of empathy, right? At 12 to 16 to 18 months of age. But this empathy occurs so early on, so early on. So... Uh, one of the fascinating things that occurs is when you uh, stick a, your tongue out at a newborn, a newborn will stick her tongue out back at you, which is a remarkable thing. Because a newborn has never seen a face and never seen a tongue. They've been stuck in the dank womb forever, right? So how do they know what a tongue is and how do they know that it's your tongue and to stick your, their tongue back out? I mean, it's mind-blowing what, uh, what uh, babies and, and children can do, let alone how quickly they grow, right? A bra baby's brain has so many neural connections it simply blows your mind. And what happens as an adult is we whittle them down, right? Like babies are born knowing all forms of language and can distinguish just about every sound in every language. And then from six to 12 months, that whittles down to their specific language. So, I mean, we're all born geniuses in, and philosophers, really. Uh, babies can solve problems that philosophers have spent a long time trying and failing to solve, at least until I think our conversation came along in some small areas and some not so small. But if the child is not mirrored, has empathy, right? Because there's value in the world and there's value in people. All right, so she, Isabella loves to explore the world and Isabella uh, enjoys interacting with Christina and myself, right? When we come down and big smiles and run, she crawls over to us and wants to climb up and so on. Is it because she has empathy for us? Well, no, of course not. She only has empathy for herself. We are a source of pleasure to her, and so she wants to spend time with us, right? And she wants to, she wants to spend time with the pleasure we... She wants to experience the pleasure we provide and really want to spend time with us, if that makes any sense. But that will uh, occur, right? So there's a little snippet in the book, in a book that I'm reading where this um, woman is writing, and she's a, one of the writers of the book, this woman who's got a PhD in development, I think it's developmental psychology, I think. And she says that she had, you know, one of these days where uh, uh, she was, um, you know, she thought she was a bad researcher because one of her, grand, uh, one of her papers got rejected by a newspaper. And, and, and she thought she was a bad teacher because a student argued, agreed with her. And she thought she was a bad mother because she came home and uh, hadn't defrosted the chicken for dinner, right? So she sat on the couch and she burst into tears. And her two-year-old went and got a, a box of Kleenexes and started putting Kleenexes on, uh, on mommy randomly, right? Because she's crying 
so she must be in pain, and so the thing to do is to uh, you know give her band-aids because that's what you do when somebody's hurt, right? And that's a kind of empathy. Is it is it exactly the same as empathy as we understand it? Who knows? I certainly don't. Maybe somebody does, but it's certainly a kind of empathy, and uh, uh, that must come because somebody, his mother, tenderly gave him um, band-aids when he was. Uh, unwell. And if you don't get that, or if you're attacked for, like when you're in, in pain, if you're mocked or humiliated or even further attacked, or if the source of your pain, through violence or yelling or whatever, through if the source of your pain is your caregiver, then it would seem to me that a an anti-value world would be your result, emotionally and, and almost developmentally, almost cognitively, right? So if, if that which should be nurtured is attacked in you, right, pain or vulnerability or whatever, that which should be um, supported is humiliated, then wouldn't you just sort of inevitably end up in this anti-value universe? Because the signals that you're giving which would require parental support or which would invite parental support or instead getting parental or caregiver attack you would end up with an anti... So that, that which should help is hurting, right? This is anti-value. Not no value, as a rock is, has no value, but anti-value, as I talk about in the Nihilism podcast and video. Wouldn't that occur? And, you know, you could, you could go on and on. Uh, you know, where does postmodernism break down? Uh, where do people have this idea that everything uh, is equal? It's more sophisticated than the anti-value trauma of base nihilism, in my opinion. But where does it fall on the continuum? Well, it's, I think it's after the development of language. And I think it would occur in, in families where uh, conflict is considered bad. Conflict is considered bad. Because that's really what postmodernism, postmodernism is. Postmodernism is this middle child classical syndrome of trying to keep the peacemaker, the peacemaker trying to keep peace within the family and warring factions and so on. All strong opinions are bad. The middle of the road is, is good. Uh, uh, anybody who's an absolutist is, is, is crazy. It's a primitive stage of development. Anybody who's certain about anything is bound to be aggressive and abusive. And it's, it's a middle child with warring siblings or warring parents trying to keep the peace. At least this would be my silly amateur theory. And so where does postmodernism fit? Well, a hostility towards certainty can only come from warring, irrational, bigoted absolutes within a family and a desire to keep the peace at any cost, to dilute any kind of, you know, let's agree to disagree. Let's just dilute it. Because the conflicts are unresolvable. And therefore, we must simply agree to disagree. Uh, and that's, uh, to me, uh, a, ch a, a, a child stuck between warring, opposing, bigoted personalities uh, with irrational absolutes who then views all certainty as destructive. And because, because what happens is there's this emotional recoiling Right? There's this emotional recoiling that occurs in these realms. And, and this is something that we see over and over again when we talk philosophy with people. Because you say, well, we can't reason people out of beliefs that they have not been reasoned into. But that's a fascinating question. It's been at the core of what I've been working on for all these years. Well, if you can't reason someone out of a belief that he has not been reasoned into, the question then is, well, how the hell did he get that belief at all? Right? It can't be just cultural, because within each culture, there's a wide variety of facets. It's a scintillating diamond. It's a disco ball of refracted and reflected different opinions and perspectives. There's not culture that produces 
a nihilist and a relativist and an absolutist and a racist and a non-racist and, you know, a religious and an agnostic and an atheist and a this. And a, it's not culture that produces all of these. Certainly, the less brutal the culture is, the more fragments there seem to occur or appear within society. But how is it possible that all of these different perspectives are formed within society, it can't be through rational argument because then they would be, people would be more amenable to reason, right? It has to be that something, and, and this is a general theory that uh, I've read in, in, uh, in psychologists or psychological texts, which is that trauma, unprocessed trauma, arrests development, right? So if you had a you know, a big trauma, uh, you know, your mom died and no one talked to you about it and you weren't allowed to grieve when you were 11, then part of you gets stuck at the age of 11. And you can sort of grow in a way, sort of willfully and, and somewhat artificially, but there's a core part of you that's going to be stuck until you sort of go back and process that, uh, you know, that which was unprocessed or that which was not allowed to be processed in, in whatever trauma. And, you know, even in healthy families, there's, there, there are traumas, right? You first learn about death. Right? I mean, are you allowed to talk about it? You know, you're sort of eight or nine, and your goldfish dies, and you know, you get that he's not coming back. Then, right? So, it's a, it, to me, as again, as a layperson, I generally understand that it's a generally accepted uh, thesis in the psychological community that you know, think of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, people can't move on; they have re repetitions of the trauma until they work through the fear and the the anxiety and the pain associated with it. That if you have a trauma that remains unprocessed unintegrated into the personality then you get emotionally and therefore to some degree at least cognitively stuck at the age where the trauma occurred now if that is the case if that is the case I think it is but what do I care about? what do you care about what I think right but I think it is if that is the case then it goes a long way to me towards explaining why people have these hardened, irrational, traumatized opinions that they're absolutely certain of that they get angry and irritated and sometimes outright hostile when they're confronted with the illogic, when they simply re refuse to process the illogic of their position, you know, whether they're nihilists or relativists or theists or whatever, agnostics. Well, it has to have something to do with emotional trauma, and it has to have something to do with particular stages in cognitive development, right? It, it, it has to. Again, it has to doesn't prove it, but why it has to is because we do see particular patterns of brain development, or researchers, do we, researchers see particular patterns of brain development and particular stages of brain development. We know that trauma arrests emotional and cognitive development in the moment of trauma, right? stuck like a fly in amber. And that doesn't mean that you can't sort of fake your way past it, but you don't really get past it, right? You may self-medicate, you may uh, end up, uh, you know, in, with broad patterns of dysfunction rather than specific areas of dysfunction, you know, like bad relationships rather than something specific. But if we, and, and there's not an infinite number of philosophical perspectives, it's not a big blend, right? It tends to be very, very specific. It tends to be very, very specific, right? So you may have outgrown the animistic 
phase of development where children can't really distinguish between living and non-living things, which is, I think, where religion comes from, you may have developed past that, but not to real empiricism, and therefore you get stuck in agnosticism, right? So there are particular patterns of brain development that correspond, if interrupted, if frozen in time, if retarded, that do correspond to particular philosophical positions to some degree. And if it is emotional trauma or a lack of development, emotional and cognitive development, that gets people stuck at particular phases in development, in the cognitive development, which translate to these philosophical positions, then we would fully expect that if the illogic of those positions were confronted, that emotional hostility would result. That's a, that's a damn long sentence. hope it makes some kind of sense. I'll try it I'll drop once more. More for my satisfaction than yours. Thanks for your patience. Because there are pretty specific philosophical positions that you run into again and again, and they correspond quite well to particular patterns of brain development, if it's true that people get stuck in these positions and then they turn philosophical as a way of attempting to justify the emotional trauma that they're stuck in, then we would expect that people who have certainty about their positions, those positions being irrational, when confronted with the irrationality of those positions, that they would become hostile and tense and weird. Why? Because there is a trauma at the bottom, right? Which is what we've talked about a number of times. And, you know, as a guy who loves philosophy, it's, to me, completely irresponsible to not examine why people don't listen to it, right? Why people are so hostile to basic reason. Uh, it, it makes no sense. It makes no sense, because everybody has all these reasons for what they believe. And to me, it's completely irresponsible if you're into philosophy. It's completely irresponsible to say, well, I have the answers. I have some great answers. But, you know, people are just stup too stupid to listen, right? That can't be it. There has to be some other reason. There's no point having, there's no point developing a cure if no one's going to take it, right? So that's why I continue to examine these things, and I hope that these ruminations are of some help to you. Uh, if you are interested in this, I would be happy to put together something more uh, detailed, uh, again, based on my sort of own layperson amateur knowledge, uh, so that we could look at this more detail. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, for donating, for supporting, for subscribing, for participating, for asking questions, for spreading the word. I really, really, really do appreciate it. And may I be so bold as to say, the future appreciates it as well. Thank you.